teach to you the whole counsel of God. Well, the whole counsel is Old and New Testament. Okay? So we're connecting the dots. An exciting journey through the Old Testament. Let's pray together. And we're going to learn some real foundational things tonight. Father, we just thank you for the Word of God that you gave us. And we pray you will open our understanding to it. We might get a firm grasp on the whole counsel of God. Holy Spirit, you're the teacher of the church. Come right now and open our understanding, open our eyes ears to hear, eyes to see what the Lord would say to the church, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them it's going to be good tonight. God bless you. They have the most fun over there. <laughs> All right. Now, this is our key verse tonight. Let's read this together. Psalm 68, verse 11. The Lord gave the word. I got five of you going with me. Let's try the rest. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those that published it. Well, who gave the word? The Lord did. And how many were the company that actually wrote it? Huh? Great. But how many of them were there? about 40, over how long a period of time? About 1,500 years. And yet it's unified. It agrees. There's no contradictions. Though some people sometimes will think they're pointing out a contradiction, you will discover they didn't really study it because it doesn't contradict, and that's one of the miracles of it. 1,500 years, 40 different authors, most of whom didn't know each other. They did not sit down and say, okay, we're going to write a holy book, so let's be sure we're saying the same things. No. Holy men of old, said Peter, were moved on by the Holy Ghost and wrote. So I tell you this every week, but you've got a, the only book on earth that didn't come from earth is your Bible. It came from above. It came from God's heart, God's mouth. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, theonoustos, breathed out of God, that we might be matured. I mean, we need that Bible every single day. I had a pastor visit me this week, and he brought in a little thing to write what I shared with him. He said, I just want to ask you some questions. And he said, what do your days look like? He said, how do you start your days? And he said, tell me the truth. So I said, okay, I'm going to tell you the truth. I start my days truthfully with the Word of God. I do not, and coffee. Thank you. Is that my wife? That was my wife. I, Jehovah Java. I'm sorry. Somebody, I'm not being sacrilegious. I just, but here's the deal. I start it with the Word of God. Now, is that because I'm super spiritual? No. I know what I need. So I told him, I started with the Word of God. I don't eat physical food until I've eaten spiritual food. Just my little personal law. You don't have to do that, but I do that. He said, seven days a week. And I said, well, and I'll be truthful with you. On the seventh day, it's the only day, Sabbath day, that I don't get up and read part of my devotional because I'm, pre I'm preparing for that day's uh, ministry. But Saturday morning, when I have the whole day in front of me, I start it the same way with the Word of God. And I've just learned through the years to soak it in. It is our manna. You must have it. Jesus told us, man shall not live by what you eat alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You can't live as a believer without the Word of God. It is spiritual oxygen. Okay? So he's writing all this down, and I said, that's the truth. That's, and if it wasn't the truth, I would tell you, but it's the truth. Now, the Lord gave us the word, and about 40 uh, men, uh, most of them Jewish, Luke being the only exception, um, published it. Now, here's the introduction tonight. This time we're going to look at the original languages. We're not going to read Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, but I'm just going to show you what, they were what the Bible was written in. 
originally, uh, and explain how the scriptures have been translated into other languages. We're going to learn the difference between a translation and a paraphrased version of the Bible. These are things that you may, may not have ever been aware you were wondering about, but you've probably wondered about them. What Bible do I get? What translation? What's the difference? What was it written in? How was it put together? How can I know that I can trust it? I want to show you, you can totally trust it as God's Word. Now, the Bible was originally written in three languages. Most of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, except for parts of the books of Daniel and Nehemiah, which were written in Aramaic. The New Testament was written in Greek, Koine Greek, K-O-I-N-E, Koine Greek, which was the common Greek of, of that day, the, the common man's Greek of the first century. None of the original manuscripts of the Bible are still in existence. Some good manuscripts do exist, which are accurate copies of the original. Now, what is a Bible version? When you, hear, when you say to somebody, what version do you have? What does that mean? A version is a translation of these copies of the original manuscripts. It's a translation out of Hebrew into English, as it relates to us, or out of Greek into English, or Aramaic into English. From early times, men saw the necessity of translating the Bible so everybody could read it in their own language. We didn't have it in, in English. We're sunk, right? Because it's all Greek to you and me, right? Now, no translation is exact because no two languages are exactly alike. Some words used in the Bible don't even exist in different languages. Okay? For example, this is a cool example. I really like this. There, there's a tribe of Indians in Ecuador, South America, called the Aka Indians. When missionaries first contacted them, these Indians did not know how to read or write. They were totally illiterate. There were no words in their language for writing or book or God or love or whatever. The Alka Indians did have a custom of carving identification marks on their property. Since there were no words in their language for scriptures, writing, or book when the Bible was translated for them, they called it God's carving. Isn't that cool? Hey, pass the carving. Can I share your carving? God's carving. This identified it as something that belonged to God. God's carving. And so they, they call the Bible God's carving. We call it God's word. They call it God's carving. This is just one example of the difficulties you can encounter in translating the Bible into various languages. But here's the incredible thing. The United Bible Societies in October 2011 said there were 469 languages with a complete Bible. Now start counting 1 to 469 and think of all the languages where they have a total Bible that somebody translated from Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic into that language. But 2,527 languages had at least some portion of Scripture translated. Do you know that the Bible is far and away the most translated book in the world? By far, nothing comes close. Not Homer, not Shakespeare, name any book from antiquity, none of the philosophers, none, of, none have been translated like the Bible. And it remains tonight the number one bestseller in the world, the number one bestseller of all time. Huh, why would that be? Because it's God's Word, God's carving. Now, there are many different versions of the Bible. The word version means a Bible written in a language different from those in which God's Word was originally written. Now, let's talk about those versions. There's two main types of versions of the Bible, translation and a paraphrase. Everybody in here that has a living Bible or a message Bible, hold it up. If you've got a living Bible or a message Bible. Okay, you have a paraphrase, all right? The rest of you, you all have translations, I hope. The rest of you have a translation. Raise your hand. 
Many of you don't have a Bible. We need to give some away tonight. Okay? Now, so what what is the difference? Here's what a translation is. It's an effort to express what the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic words actually say in your language. Let me give you a simple one. Agape or agape. Agape or agapao. Agape is translated from the Greek into English. What is it? Love. Theos is translated into God. Thumos is translated into wrath. So when you take a Greek word as a translator, what you're looking for, let's say you're translating it into English, you're looking for the English word that is closest to what that Greek word means. And then you're going to translate that Greek word into that English word. Now, I can tell you that there are Greek words that, that really there's not a good English equivalent. So you have to find the closest you can and use that word in your translation. So agape, you remember uh, there's several words for love in the Greek language. There's phileo, there's eros, there's agape. Eros is physical love. Uh, um, Phileo is friendship kind of love. And agape is God's kind of love. You take the little exchange that Jesus had with with Simon Peter. It's one of the best examples. In in the English Bible, in our Bibles, you will see the exchange go like this. When, When the resurrected Christ confronted Simon Peter and said to him, Peter, do you love me? Do you, Peter, agape me? Now, in the English Bible, you would read it like this. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, a second time, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you really love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, in the English, that's what we read. But in the Greek, it's like this. Peter, do you agape me? Peter responds, Lord, you know I phileo you. Peter has lost all of his brag. Because he said he'd never deny the Lord, and he did. And all the air is knocked out of him. He's not walking around bragging, saying, I I love you more than all these dudes. So all he's willing to say is, Lord, I love you like a friend. He's not willing to take it to the God level because he's been so humbled. But you don't see this in the English translation. Second time, Peter, do you agape me? Lord, you know I phileo you. I love you like a friend, Lord. I'll go there third time, Peter, do you even phileo me? Jesus takes it down his left side. You say you love me like a friend. Are you, you sure you even love me there? Peter said, you know I phileo you. Now there's that interplay between agape and phileo that you will not see in your Bible. But the Greek, that's what you read. They just didn't translate it that way. So, well, good grief, Pastor, then I'm getting ripped off when I read my Bible. <laughs> no, because you're here and you're learning how to dig. Okay. Okay. So that's what a translation is. It is as close as you can get to a word-for-word translation, Greek word, Hebrew word, Aramaic word into English or whatever language you're translating into. It gives as nearly as possible a literal word by word translation. Extra words are inserted only when it's necessary in order for the reader to understand the meaning. When you're reading your Bible, sometimes you'll see right in the middle of a verse an italicized word. You ever notice that? That means the translator inserted that to help you understand the verse. It was not in the original language. When you've seen a italicized word, that's something the translator put there to help you understand the verse. Everybody with me? So next time you see an italicized word, circle it and say, there's one. Okay? Now, a paraphrase, as opposed to a translation, does not attempt to translate word for word. It translates thought by thought. A paraphrase is a restatement of the meaning 
of a passage. A paraphrase is what the author of that paraphrase, what he has come up with to best help you understand what he feels the verse is saying. But it is not a translation, word for word, from the original language to your language. Paraphrase versions are easier to read and understand because they are written in modern vocabulary and grammar. But they are not an exact translation of God's Word. A paraphrase version does not contain the exact word-by-word translation of Scriptures. For beginners, it might be good to use a paraphrase, but for the most part, a translation is best. And I'll just tell you this. I, you know, if I have somebody that's just been born again, I have no issue with handing them a, a living Bible. Living Bible is a paraphrase. The Living Bible, the Message Bible, Good News for Modern Man, there are several paraphrases. Living Bible and Message Bible are really the, the, the best known. I don't have any problem with them reading that at first, but I don't want them staying there. And I'll be honest with you. I really don't want them staying there because I want them getting translation. I want them reading words that are closest to the original Greek, not what an author's best idea was. Okay? Now, I'm not telling you to throw away your message Bible. I'll go ahead and confess to you tonight. Every once in a while, I put a message uh, verse up here from the Message Bible because it says it in a way I know you'll understand it best. But in my personal devotional, my personal Bible reading, I, I never read the Message or the Living Bible. I read the New King James Version, which I'll talk about in a minute. But I read a translation because I want as close as I can get to the original language because that's what speaks to me. It's what God used. It's what God said. Okay? Now, there are many good translations to choose from. Let me give you a few. The New American Standard Bible, NASB. I think next to the King James and New King James, the NASB might be one of the best. Now, you can, you can read whatever translation you want, but New Living Translation is a great one, NLT. That is what Tom Dooley was reading when he, when he uh, narrated the Bible that many of you have the recording of. It was the NLT. Common English Bible is a great translation. New King James Bible is, is the one I use. And those are all examples of some of the very best translations. Now we come to the King James. Now, I, I said all that to tell you the King James is the only valid version. You guys looked at me so serious. Because we got, we got King James only people. Now, I, I, I don't. I'm not mocking them. I'm not uh, in any way doing that. I'm just telling you that it's not the only valid version. It's a great one. But it's not the only one. There's King James only churches. I mean, Kathy and I pass one. We go to East Texas. We pass this little building, King James only church. And to them, every other translation is, is a corruption. And, and they mean it. And, I mean, they will kill you over it, <laughs> so to speak. I've had people come right down here in this altar and get in my face and say, are you a King James-only person? I say, no, I, I just can't go there. And they walk out and say. Because if you understand translation... And how it worked, you can't say that's the only valid one. Okay? Now, having said that, and boy, am I going to get mail on this one when it goes on the radio. Uh, when it, but but here's the, here is where the King James does stand out from the others. The King James Version of the Bible is very accurate, and it's a good translation for serious study. There are more study tools. Here's, here, here it is. More study tools available for the King James Version than any other. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. How many of you have a Strong's Concordance? Okay, then you know that you've got to use the King James if you're going to use the Strong's. I'm going to give you an example in a minute. There's a large number of concordances, dictionaries, and commentaries written only for the King James text. All the thee, thou, wouldest, shouldest, couldest, all that stuff, these commentaries were written for the King James. Strong's Concordance, for example, translates from the words used only in the King James Bible. 
Now, let me give you an example. John 1, 3 reads differently in several translations. Now, I'm going to show you four different translations of John 1, 3 and how the word for create is different in every one of them and how the King James is the only one the Strong's can give you the Greek word for and help you to understand what that word create meant in the original Greek. Now watch this. Here's the New Living Translation. God created everything through him, and nothing was what? Created except through him. Who's the him? It's Jesus. Jesus was active in creation. Jesus was God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And then God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. Now, let's look at NASB. All things did what? Came into being through him. Rather than using the word created, the NASB translators decided to say came into being. Do you see it? Okay. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So we've got created and we've got came into being. Both translated from the original Greek word for created. Okay, now, here's Young's literal translation. All things through him did happen. And without him happened not one thing that has happened. So you got created, you got came into being, and you got happened. But all three of those Choices came from the original Greek word for create. Y'all with me? This just the, 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 the translators decided to use what they used to find the best English equivalent for the word. Now, here's the KJV, King James. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So we got created, came into being, happened, and made. That's four translations. Translations, not paraphrases. They're trying to bring into the English language the best word they could find to explain what happened that God created through Jesus. Well, now, if you want to go into your Strong's Concordance that has all the Bible words exhaustively. That's why it's called Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. All the Bible words exhaustively, every word in the Bible, it's there in the Strong's Concordance. And if you go to the right, it'll have a number. And the number will lead you to the original language and what the word you looked up meant in the original language. Well, guess what? You can't find created in John, for John 1, 3 in Strong's. You can't find came into being in Strong's. You can't find happened in Strong's. You must use the word made from the King James Version to look it up in the Strong's and go back and find what it really meant. Are you all with me? I don't want to get ahead of you. Some of you are going, looking at me cross-eyed. And, and, and I understand. It can be a little complicated, but... But if you want to find what that original word meant in the Greek language, you've got to find the word the King James used. So, essentially, if you're going to do word studies, you've got to have a King James. And for those of you that know what I'm talking about, the Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, Vines, Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, any of the helps, you've got to have a King James to chase down that word. So for that reason, King James is always going to sell. I mean, it's going to help it sell. It's going to sell anyway, but that really makes you have to have one if you're going to chase down words. If you were wanting to take your Strong's Concordance and look up the word created or came into being or happened, you wouldn't find them. Only the word made, which the King James uses. For instance, let's look at John 1, 1 through 2 in a translation. Now let's compare a translation to a paraphrase, and I'm going to show you the difference. Here's the New King James, John 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning was the Word. Let's read this together. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who's the Word? Nope. Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. It's one of the most profound verses in the New Testament. This one right here. It tells you who Jesus was. Wow. He was not just a nicey-nicey teacher who said cool things, right? He was God. He was God. Hello, everybody. And God is coming back. Okay. So he was in the beginning with God. So catch the language now. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now that is not saying that Jesus began. It's saying when the beginning began, the beginning of creation, when it began, Jesus was already there. You can get to a place where it, it blows your mind. You cannot wrap your mind around the concept of eternity. I had an evolutionist ask me this week. said, well, if God is outside of time and space, then how can he really be? And I wanted to write back and say, what do you mean? That describes God. He is outside of time and space. We are subject to time, space, aging, dying, wearing out. But not God. He's outside of time. He lives and dwells in eternity. And it, we can't go there in our minds, but I'm going to tell you anyway, he's always been. Now, I'm going to talk, I can think about that for about two minutes and then I start freaking out. Because you can't imagine something that has always been because our minds force us to think in terms of time. But he has no time. So he's saying in the, when the beginning began, God was already there and so was Christ because he's God the Son. All right, now watch the paraphrase. Here's the Message Bible. See if you read this first, if you would get out of it what we just got out of King James. The Message Bible says the Word was first, the Word present to God, God present to the Word. The Word was God in readiness for God from day one. I want to say when I read that, I want to say, what? <laughs> Do you see how, and, I, and again, I'm not running down, they have a, a purpose and a place. But if you read just this and did not read a translation, would you walk away going, Jesus was God? No. You would just say the word present to God. I, I would picture that Jesus was kind of there with God, but I sure wouldn't walk away going, wow, Jesus the Messiah was God. The paraphrase waters it down. Do you see that? And then when it, the last part, the word was God in readiness for God from day one. I don't know what that means. In readiness for God, I, I don't know what that means. It, it makes it hard to understand. So that's why I say you want a translation because you're going to get closest to the original language, and that's going to help you understand what God intended for you to understand. Now, if I just led, you know, 30 hell's angels to Christ, I'm giving them a message Bible. Okay? Right. Because what are they going to do with thee, thou, would have, should have, could have, and all? What are they gonna, I'm going to give them a message Bible, but then I'm going to trust that down the road, as they begin to come into their understanding, they'll go on to a translation. Y'all are quiet. Now, we know what a red letter edition is. All the words of Jesus are in red. That's easy. Now, let's just do a summary. The following chart, I'm going to show you a little chart, summarizes how the various versions of the Bible developed. The Bible was inspired by God, first thing. Then it was revealed to holy men who wrote God's words in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. 
Then it was interpreted into various languages. And that's it. Resulting in exact translations and paraphrased versions of the Bible. God gave it. Men wrote it. Men translated it. Hence, we have versions and paraphrases. Translations. Everybody good? Now, let me just show you some Old Testament myths and why we should study the Old Testament. And let me show you why some people don't. Why is it important to spend time studying the Old Testament? There are myths floating around that really uh, marginalize the Old Testament in the minds of a lot of Christians. And therefore, they don't read it much. But here's, here's one of those myths. The Old Testament is insignificant. Many times we think this is just background material for the New Testament. And why would we want to pay attention to the first half of the game if we already know the result of the second half of the game? Okay? Have you ever tried watching a football game that you recorded? Anybody? I have. And I never last until it just goes through on its own. I fast forward because I want to see who made the touchdown and who, I want to see the end if I can possibly get there. That's what a lot of people do with their Bible. They say, why mess with the Old Testament when I see where it was all headed? Here's myth number two. The Old Testament is irrelevant. We say it contains a lot of things we don't observe or seem to relate to our lives anymore. A lot of people believe that. There's a lot of people, even Christians, who say that the Old Testament is more for Israel and not for us. Critics ask this question. What relevance does an ancient animal slaughtering religion that talks about a God in a portable tent have for Christianity in the 21st century? The portable tent being the tabernacle in the wilderness. What, what does any of that really have to do with us? Have you ever read a passage in the Old Testament and said, why did God put that there? For instance, 2 Kings, let me give you a great example. 2 Kings chapter 2, this is what a lot of atheists would point out and say, see, you're God, he's mean and cruel and this and that and the other. Here's a good example. 2 Kings, it's the story of Elisha. From, from there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walk, walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, baldy. This is the real reason Brendan wasn't here tonight. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Y'all can tell him I said that. He'll get a kick out of it. Now, so clearly Elisha was, was really bald. Now, he turned around, the prophet did, looked at them and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And what happened then? Two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 boys. Now, that was Old Testament youth ministry. <laughs> and I guarantee you there's been some youth pastors which they could do that. So here's what the atheist will say. Why do we need to know about two, or, or the Christian who doesn't think the Old Testament is relevant, why do we need to know about two bears taking out 42 boys? Why, why that? That's gross. And that doesn't help our cause when we're witnessing. And what does that have to do with us? Well, what you'll find is when you see an Old Testament story like that, often there's a principle behind it. The principle is when you mock authority, God's authority, something ends up eating you. It, it does. Look at any teenager that decides to rebel against parents and God. And look at where they end up. Watch what happens to them. I know what happened to me. If you rebel against God's authority, she-bears of one kind or another do end up chewing on you, consuming you, destroying you. So the principle you extract from the story, and it's, better, it's easier to understand it. Now, myth number four, the Old Testament is inconsistent with the New Testament. It does not make sense in lie of the New Testament. This is why a lot of people disconnect the Old Testament uh, from Christianity as a whole. They look at the Old Testament as a Jewish book. And there's cults that use the Old Testament as well, like Mormons and Muslims. Muslims built a lot of their religion on the Old Testament, Abraham and whatnot. They, they call themselves the descendants of Abraham, when really they're the descendants of Ishmael. 
which only reinforces the negative view some hold of the Old Testament. One of the most commonly asked questions is, why would the God of grace, love, mercy, and compassion we see in the New Testament pour out such fierce judgment, wrath, and punishment in the Old Testament? In other words, I don't see the same God in the Old as I do in the New. And boy, do atheists hit you with that. I know. I've been debating with them for months now. Hardcore atheists who recently wrote to me and said, we can't wait. It's Christmas time. We can't wait to attack this whole thing about taking Jesus out of Christmas. The the Christians are going to stand up and gripe that he's being taken out. We're going to stand up and say he should be taken out. That we should not be forced to partake of your religion. I talk to them all the time. And and I, I know what they think. They use things like this. That God of the Old Testament was mean, cruel. He was a... He was, uh, he was racist. He was, he was um, uh, uh, unforgiving. He was, he was unmerciful. He slaughtered people. He told other people to slaughter people. And then I look in the New Testament, and where is he? I don't see the same God in the Old and the New. And frankly, I like the New Testament God better. But the Old Testament God is exactly the same God as in the New Testament. We just see a different manifestation of his character. But if you think he doesn't still judge, go to the book of Revelations and read on. Okay? So what they say, how do they go together? Now, how do you reconcile the judgment that we see in the Old Testament, whether it's 42 poor boys or of whole nations that are being wiped out? How do you justify that with the God of love and grace and mercy? It seems inconsistent. Now, here's myth number five. The Old Testament is incomprehensible. For many, it is cumbersome. It's confusing. It Often, if you try to read it, especially if you're somewhere in like a Leviticus, trying to truck through all those dietary laws and rituals and, and whatnot, it, it, it leads to boredom. It leads to apathy. It leads ultimately to neglect of the Old Testament. Many of its 39 books are filled with history we don't understand, with places of names and towns and cities we have no clue what it's talking about. Sounds like it's out of Star Wars, as well as names we can hardly pronounce, and it can be overwhelming trying to get through the Old Testament. We're a lot more familiar with the Gospels where we see Jesus, and we like that God better. As a result, we use the Old Testament every once in a while in our quiet times, but the bulk of our faith is dependent on the New Testament. Now, Here's the central message. Catch this tonight. These are myths that can be dispelled with one central message. The Old Testament is invaluable. Can you say that with me? The Old Testament is invaluable. It's God's old covenant, which led to the new covenant. Let me show you just just some thoughts. If we abandon the books of the Old Testament, we abandon the full revelation of God or the whole counsel of God. Can you imagine abandoning Genesis? The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. The Old Testament looks forward to the coming of Christ. The New Testament looks back on the Christ that has come. The Old Testament anticipates the cross. The Gospels announce the cross. And the epistles explain the cross. When we ignore the Old Testament, we hinder our ability to understand the New Testament's revelation of God. If we abandon the Old Testament, we will never get the full picture the New Testament presents. The key to the New Testament is the Old Testament. Okay? There's at least 1,600 direct quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament. So apparently the writers of the New Testament consider the Old Testament relevant. In addition to all kinds of allusions and references to it, if we don't get what the Old Testament teaches, we will never fully get Christ. It's very important for us to remember that the Lord of the universe who gave us this book does not waste words. He gave us the entire Bible for a reason. What did it say again in 2 Timothy 3.16? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So if you say, well, I don't really need the Old Testament, you're really essentially saying, I don't need 39 books of God's carving, God's Word. 
So how should we study it? Let me show you how we're going to do this in this series. I want us to look at the Old Testament through three lenses. First, the literary dimension. Literary. The Old Testament is a piece of literature, the greatest piece of literature on the planet. We're going to think about it in terms of what kind of literature it is and how that affects the way we read and understand the Old Testament. Second, there's the historical dimension. I'm going to tell you outright, it is historically accurate. All the way back to, in the beginning, God created. Okay? The Old Testament is real history. It's not fables and myths. It's real history of real people, and we're going to get a background for understanding the history. And the last dimension is the theological dimension. The Old Testament was not just written to tell us a story about history, but it was written to demonstrate God in the middle of history. In Old Testament history, here's what I love about it. You see the, the providence and sovereignty of God moving amongst the affairs of men constantly putting up leaders, bringing down leaders, birthing nations, bringing nations down. His finger, his footsteps can be traced all through the history of the world. That's why I say all the time, history is his story. The Old Testament was written to demonstrate God in the middle of history, unlike a secular history book that will just tell you things happened without giving you a behind-the-scenes look at why they happened. And that is what theology is. Theology is thea, theos logos, the study of God. Now, one of the greatest affirmations of the validity of the Old Testament, I want to close with this tonight, is what Jesus himself said about the Old Testament. Let's look at a few examples because whatever Jesus believed, hey, that's good enough for me. Right? So did Jesus affirm some of the wilder stories of the Old Testament? He sure did. First of all, Jesus used the Old Testament as a source of authority against Satan. When confronted by Satan, he appealed to the Old Testament as a source of authority by stating, it is written. And what did he quote? The Old Testament, because the New Testament didn't exist. He quoted the Old. He said to him, it is written. And that quote of the Old Testament is what defeated Satan. Jesus said that the word was imperishable. Jesus said, for truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law, the law, until all is accomplished. Every word written in the Old Testament is going to be fulfilled. It's the word of God. So it's imperishable. Now it's unbreakable. The unbreakability of the Word of God Jesus talked about. What did he say in John 10, 35? Read it with me. The Scripture cannot be broken. And any time Jesus said the Scripture, he was going to the Old Testament. Jesus never wrote a book. Do you ever think about that? He never wrote a book until he got to heaven. Then he moved on men to write it. How about the source of doctrinal authority? What you believe about life, death, heaven, hell? Jesus used the Old Testament for doctrinal authority. He appealed to Scripture when correcting false doctrine, stating, quote, he said to the Pharisees and Sadducees, you are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures nor the power of God. What were the Scriptures he was referring to? Now, we still do that today. Let me, let me give you a great example. And now I'm going where angels fear to tread, but I'm going there because he did. Let's talk about same-sex marriage. What is our authority is it just a matter of opinion? Well, I feel like it's okay, and somebody else feels it's, it's not okay. And the whole topic of same-sex marriage that is rocking our nation today, is it a relative issue? That is, is it up to you to decide whether or not it's right or wrong, or has God spoken about it? You go, Jesus, you go to Jesus, first of all. He was asked about marriage, and Jesus said, have you not read? In the beginning, God created them male and female. Then he went on to talk about marriage. A man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife. And those two, male, female, 
shall become one flesh. Now, he was quoting Genesis. All the way back to the beginning, he was going to the Old Testament for doctrine to debate an issue with. So what is the church's authority? What we happen to feel about it? No, it doesn't matter what we feel. Have you not read that in the beginning, God established the sexes? And he said a male, he made a female for, and vice versa. Nowhere in the Bible are two men or two women marrying. Genesis makes it clear that God intended marriage for male, female. Now, that's just what it says. Don't, don't rail on me if you disagree. Rail on God who gave us the word. Am I being a homophobe? Oh, stop it. Please. That just drives me nuts. Because let me, let me give you an example. See, see, if you tell somebody, I think that's wrong, you're a homophobe bigot. You're a homophobe right-wing extremist bigot. Racist probably too. <laughs> now, let me give you an example. Let's just bring it home. If you had a friend who got into an adulterous relationship, let's say the friend is married. You have a married friend who gets involved in an adulterous relationship. Your friend has children. Your friend has a husband. Your friend has a good reputation. And they get involved in an adulterous relationship. Are you loving them if you say, hey, cool, I'm tolerant? <laughs> Let me ask you this. If you say to them, I love you, man, you're ruining yourself. You're going to pay for this. Can I just tell you, this is a sin. And if I say that, am I an adulterophobe? <laughs> now, no, seriously. Or let's say you've got a friend and they decide the thing to do is rob banks. They come into a real financial crisis and they go ahead and put on a mask and they get a pistol and they go out and, and you find, they tell you, they confide in you, you know, I have found my real niche in robbing banks. <laughs> now, now, they're married, they have a reputation, and you love them. Are you a kleptophobe <laughs> if you tell them, that's a sin, bro? That's going to put you, that's going to ruin your life. Of course not. Does that mean you hate thieves or that you hate adulterers? No. No more than if I say to someone in sexual sin, you're in sexual sin. And, and I really want you coming out of it. I'm going to pray for you. That does not make me a hater. That, does not, that makes me a lover. It just drives me nuts. I'm sorry. I just, sometimes I want to read. Sometimes I wish I had a slingshot for my TV. Boom. Okay. Crazy where our culture is going. Truthfulness. Jesus said, your word is truth. Talking about the Old Testament. Historical reliability. Jesus affirmed. Look at what he affirmed. Jonah and the whale. He talked about it in Matthew 12. Noah and the flood. He talked about it in Matthew 24. Adam and Eve, he talked about in Matthew 19. So Jesus affirmed all the stories that our modern culture poo-poos. A big whale did swallow Jonah. God designed that whale for Jonah. And Jesus affirmed it. Well, what do you do with that if you're a Christian in our culture? You stand with Jesus. Scientific reliability. Here you go. Jesus affirmed that God created the world. He would never have agreed with evolution. Ever. That's a whole different topic. But he affirmed that God created it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus said, in the beginning. Have you not read, in the beginning, God made them? Made them. Made them. Now, eight, Old Testament canonicity. We're going to go over that more next time and what that means. But Jesus made reference to the law and the prophets as a single unit. 
He said, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. Jesus explained the scriptures. Remember when he got up to the two guys going on the road to Emmaus, Cleopas and the other one, who were disillusioned over the crucifixion of Jesus? And Jesus sided up with them and they didn't recognize him. And how did he bring them out of their depression and disillusionment? Then beginning with Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself. Just like I told you a couple of weeks ago, the whole Bible is about Jesus. Old Testament points to him. New Testament points back at him. Then Jesus referred to the entire canon, all the books of the Old Testament, by mentioning all the prophets from Abel, from Genesis, the first book, and first martyr, Abel, Cain's brother, to Zechariah, Chronicles, the last book, and the last martyr. He referred to all of it and said it was the Word of God, the Old Testament. What does this mean? Since Jesus is God in flesh, performed a life of miraculous healings, died on the cross, and was miraculously resurrected three days later, what he taught on issues of doctrine are vastly important. Since he was God in flesh, whatever he taught is true. And he taught the whole Old Testament was true and God's Word. This means that we can trust the accuracy of the Old Testament scriptures on issues of, read them with me, history, science, and moral instruction. Next time, we're going to look at how the Old Testament was put together. Can we stand together? How many of you enjoyed this tonight? Isn't this good? Amen. All right, let's, let's lift our hands towards him and just thank him. Lord, we just thank you that the Old Testament is totally trustworthy. Thank you that we have an anchor, that we have a source for ultimate truth that does not change. We thank you, Lord. Your word can be trusted. We bless your name, the God of the word, and the miraculous transmission of this word and translation of this word into all those languages, including ours. Thank you, Lord, that we can feed each and every day on the manna from heaven. Thank you, Lord, that we can feed our spirits and our souls. We bless you. Thank you, Lord.